Well, hello and welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. It's me, it's me, it's SEO double T, and I'm joined today <laughs> by Greg Eastman. Hi. And Drew Davenhill. Hello there. <laughs> So, um, for borderline communists like myself, it's hard not to look at recent election results here, there, everywhere, and not think everything's going a bit peak-tong. So, in order to prepare ourselves for what seems to be our inevitable future, we're looking at three science fiction films from around 15 to 20 years ago that have imagined us living under the future jackboots of fascism with Starship Troopers, Equilibrium, and V for Vendetta. Necessary preparations, or a flimsy excuse to re-watch a few tenuously connected films? I think we all know the answer to that. (laughs) Uh, So we shall just dive straight in, I suppose, with Starship Troopers. Yes, uh, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers is one of history's most misunderstood films ever, according to about a thousand opinion pieces in various newspapers, magazines and online publications over the past 15 years. (laughs) To which I say, really? (laughs) Really, really? (laughs) A film from a director who grew up in a country occupied by a fascist regime? A film from the director Robocop? Starship Troopers is one of the most misunderstood as being misunderstood films ever, says one opinion piece. (laughs) By me. (laughs) However, at the time of its release, a lot of critics at least did seem to miss the point. Even those who had no problem understanding Robocop. How? How? Yeah, I don't know. Um, And even many of those who got it um, had their panties in a bunch thinking the audiences wouldn't. (laughs) Now, it is entirely possible to enjoy Starship Troopers simply as a sci-fi action film, and I don't have any particular issue with that. But while not all viewers may comprehend all of its themes and the satire in which it bathes, and while, furthermore, I admit I don't have the greatest of faith in the critical faculties, or lack thereof, of the great movie-going public, it costs me much to believe that it could be misunderstood or misconstrued. That children crushing insects and being handed assault rifles, drill sergeants going way beyond full metal jackets, Hartman and actually maiming the recruits, that the unquestioning tribalism and jingoism, or one of our heroes sporting a goddamn full-on SS uniform and trench coat, (laughs) could be seen as either merely incidental or as a glorification of violence. (laughs) Then, of course, I remember the world I currently live in and doubt myself and wonder if the right-wing militarism, (laughs) violence and fascist might-makes-right ideology isn't, in fact, taken at face value by many and, well, I die a little more inside. Mm -hmm. But this is supposed to be a fun discussion about ephemeral things like films, right? (laughs) So, for those unfamiliar with the film at hand, or at least in need of a quick recap, based on a 1959 novel by Robert A. Heinlein, Starship Troopers is set in a far future Earth where a militaristic totalitarian government founded after veterans overthrew a failed democracy rules the world and it begins in Buenos Aires in a high school for almost 30 year olds Uh, at release the youngest of the principal students was 24 now I'd let that slide if it was just a setup, but all the action takes place over about only a year these ancient teenagers (laughs) Johnny Rico, played by Casper Van Dien, Carmen Ibanez, Denise Richards, Carl Jenkins, Neil Patrick Harris, and Dizzy Flores, Dina Meyer, are about to graduate, and all four intend joining the military, which is currently engaged in a fight for survival against the ant lions, uh, <laughs> sorry, bugs, um, an insect-like alien species. 
lovesick Johnny is really only following <laughs> girlfriend Carmen, but she's off to Fleet Academy while he becomes an infantry grunt and is soon to be dear John to the surprise of absolutely no one. <laughs> well, except him, because he's not the smartest tool in the shed. <laughs> smartest? Sharpest? Sharpest tool in the shed. I probably wasn't writing this as the smartest tool in the shed either. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm still laughing at the crook of my arm about lovesick Johnny for some reason. It sounds like an indie band. <laughs> Following him for romantic reasons is Dizzy, while strongly psychic Carl is off to join the Space SS Paranormal Division. <laughs> about to quit during basic training, a bug attack obliterates Buenos Aires and Johnny decides to stay and show those rotten insects what for what. <laughs> the only good bug is a dead bug. What's that you say? What of the reporter who questions if human expansionism was a provocation to an incitement for this war? Well, that species traitor was soon dealt with by the insects. That'll teach him to think for himself. <laughs> After a false start, humans will turn the tide and dear Johnny will meet Carmen and Carl again on and off the battlefield. And we can all feel good that the bug menace is being repelled by our intrepid heroes and that these rotten, clearly not usies, are afraid of us and dying in their millions. Yay! Now, how in the bloody hell did Verhoeven get us to cheer for fascism? <laughs> Robocop scribe Ed Neumeyer's script hews pretty closely to Heinlein's novel, just tweaking and amplifying things enough to raise it to satire, rather than use the tone of the book, which takes its fascism rather more seriously. And Verhoeven brings it all to screen with much of his penchant for provocative, over-the-top gore and violence as well as his trademark humour, which here often stems from incongruous or winking juxtaposition. Getting the audience on board, however unwittingly, with the tribalism and fascistic messaging isn't much of a trick. That's the danger of fascist ideology and exactly the point of the film. But it's also pretty obvious, and while Verhoeven's film visually quotes, for instance, Lenny Riefenstahl's The Triumph of the Will... So to Star Wars, by the way, and not on the side you might think, you don't need to have much of a deeper reading of cinema and literature to see it. Or at least so I thought, until I found an interview with Paul Verhoeven in The Guardian uh, sometime after I wrote these notes. He says there, I was using Riefenstahl to point out, or so I thought, that these heroes and heroines were straight out of Nazi propaganda. But no one saw it at the time. I don't know whether or not the actors realised. We never discussed it. I thought Neil Patrick Harris surviving on the set in an SS uniform might clear it up. <laughs> Frightening, huh? Um, it all struck me as obvious even if at the time I could only recognise the imagery as Nazi rather than specifically Riefenstahl, but apparently I'm the weirdo. <laughs> I mean, you only need a functioning brain... Ah. Ah, yes, right. Okay, I see what I did there. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, I do believe the idea of the wide misunderstanding of the film is unfounded. In the end, though, I guess before we discuss it, what I haven't addressed is, is it any good? Well, yes, very. Entertaining, funny, clever. And while some of the special effects, and in particular the sets, look a little ropey now, it's still watchable enough nowadays from that point of view, and most importantly the film's message and themes stand up. Indeed, it's another of those films which seems sadly more relevant now than on its release. One question remains to me though, and perhaps you boys can help me out here, and it's the one message in Starship Troopers I've never been able to comprehend. What is the heady meaning of Patrick Muldoon's willfully awful hairstyle throughout? It's so bad and so obvious that it must symbolise something, but I know not what. 
Is it a hitherto unknown type of hirsute bug perched atop his head as a setup for a sequel? <laughs> it haunts me. <laughs> yes. if, it, if it was, it wasn't something that they touched upon in Starship Troopers 2 Hero of the Federation, which is a, a marked step down from this, really is. Yes. <laughs> which I watched this afternoon for Awful. The, the for the first time. I didn't move on to any of the other sequels after that. That was plenty. <laughs> I think, well, we did watch Starship Troopers 3 at some point, didn't we? Um, yeah, it was I actually had, okay. <laughs> I had this idea that I saw Starship Troopers 3 at some point, yeah, but... Um, I remember one of you talking about it and I was saying it wasn't the worst thing ever. I'm sure yeah. I've seen one of the sequels. Starship Troopers 2, even though it's written by Ed Neumeyer, it feels very much like it's a retrofit. Yes, I believe it was, yeah. Like a... Like a Somewhere kind of a bit like Aliens, a bit like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that kind of film, <laughs> dropped into that universe and having nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> yes. Um, but regardless of those films' lack of quality, um, Starship Troopers is fantastic. Still one of my favourites. I'm glad to see it holds up just as well uh, now as it did when I saw it donkeys ago. Um, like I just can't imagine people not seeing this. It's so ridiculously over the top at points that. It, Surely it must have clued them in somehow? Yeah, that's, I don't understand this. Because um, I'd seen all these articles that I mentioned, Scott, about it's the most misunderstood film. So I'm like, really? Was it? <laughs> and I, I still don't believe that it was by the vast public, but I went back and looked at it, and there are huge numbers of like, well-respected critics and like, mm-hmm. well-read magazines and things just not getting it. And I'm like, I think the most significant <laughs> uh, part of this film's legacy is that really that it was... Um, <laughs> if only we could go back 20 years and pay attention to people's response to this film it would have clued us in on a lot of what was going to happen <laughs> a little bit further down the line it's, 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 a, it's a really really good film and it works on a, a great many different levels and I I, come, I always find myself coming back to Starship Troopers every 3 or 4 years or something like that mm-hmm. and I don't think I've ever enjoyed it less than I did the first time in the cinema and I remember coming out of the I remember coming out in the cinema on a bit of a high it was one of those films that was kind of pushing the envelope but I remember coming out I think I saw it twice actually I think we might have seen it first and I remember going back and seeing it with my girlfriend or the other way around I can't remember I but I remember coming out of, I have a vague idea that I know the three of us saw but I thought Stephanie went with us oh maybe maybe actually do you know what you might be right I remember did we not go and get a kebab afterwards because I remember having the conversation, the three of us at least, about uh, one of those films. It's like, I can't believe that was only a 15. <laughs> yes, um, a big recollection of something like that, yeah. And there are, there are moments still which are like phenomenally uh, uh, visceral. And everything about it is so over the top um, that, again, yes, I, I, I'm only going to end up repeating what everyone else has said. A, it's a fantastic film. B, it's superbly entertaining and a really good watch. And C, I can't believe people didn't get it. Yeah. Particularly things like the um, the news blasts, the updates that are done there, it's, it's everything that was done in Robocop, but far more so. So yeah. you think they would have a template for understanding this already in mind. <laughs> what, what, were we, what were we 18 when this came out? 17 or 18, I'm not sure what time of the year it came out. But, yeah, um, and and to think, um, like I, I, know, I know my political stances weren't particularly well formed at that time, um, and I... <laughs> even I'm I, sure it was not a Nazi though <laughs> well no it certainly wasn't Nazi and I certainly remember coming out of the cinema thinking well that's that's an amazing that's an amazing warning about the dangers of uh, fascist propaganda <laughs> so if I was able to understand that as a relatively unsophisticated 17 or 18 year old then yeah <laughs> the mind boggles man the mind boggles 
Yeah, interesting to think. I've I've only read the Heinlein book Spade of Stone once a long time ago, but it certainly presented everything in a much different light. Uh, it's unapologetically pro-military, whereas this very much isn't. Uh, despite, as you say, it's not really deviating all that much from the text of it. It's just presenting it through a lens of over-the-top irony and um, <laughs> gives it a completely different uh, reading when you watch the film. Yeah. Oh, it recontextualises it yeah. massively. Yeah. So it's certainly nowhere near the most accurate uh, translation to the screen, but it's probably one of the most effective uh, mm. Certainly, in, in, in ways of actually being a piece of art, and how that can be, as you say, recontextualized. Uh, also, one of the few that recontextualize. Well, well, the only one we'll speak about today that recontextualizes the fascists as being the heroes rather than the uh, oppressors. So, yeah, um, I mean, I'd be interested to go back and see what the other nominations or what the nominations um, throughout award season were for adapted screenplay that year, because I think retrospectively you could go back and make a pretty strong argument that this should have been up for awards contention for that, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if like it depends on how you would judge that though because it's it's actually it's so close to because some of the dialogues even seeming like the funnier bits it's just like slightly distorted to to change the tone whereas it's not that I suppose it's still an adaptation but they never actually not that different on the page yeah yeah it's just like say it's got to say that the lens is key to well. I've never forgotten my lesson that the enemy cannot push the button if you disable his hand. <laughs> I suspect I will take that with me for the rest of my life. Medic! Medic! <laughs> of oh, that wee running gag. Yeah. Especially when it gets later on, too, and it's just like, it gets so like, mad with fact. It's not, they're not screaming, it's like, Medic! Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, highly recommended by all of us. Uh, would we say the same about Equilibrium? Would the next film go on to? Oh. Yeah, um, so before I start talking about equilibrium, just a short note, Drew and I have not compared notes beforehand, but I feel like at least the first part of this might go over some common ground. <laughs> um, I have made a mistake. When I reviewed Equilibrium for our old website back in 2003, I cited one of its weaknesses as, quote, overuse of blatant fascist and religious symbolism, unquote, going on to assert quote, I'm intelligent enough to know what kind of regime we're dealing with without having 80 foot high thinly veiled swastikas flapping in my face and I dare say most viewers will feel the same unquote Uh, had I known then what I know now I might not have been so disparaging of Equilibrium's relative lack of iconographic sophistication (laughs) given that I was quite clearly placing way too much faith in most viewers And I would argue perhaps we haven't been blatant enough in our symbolism this past decade and a half. (laughs) Such is life. Christian Bale plays Preston, a cleric of the Tetragrammaton, whose job it is to police a doped future society for the threat of human emotion, which everybody agrees is the reason why there was a Third World War. Now, you can't really argue with that assertion, but of course, there is at least a small debate to be had around our existence as humans bereft of emotion, pleasure, feeling, and an underground resistance movement exists to disrupt the supply of the universal mood suppressant prosium, which the populace imbibe daily to keep them from larking about. <laughs> Our new monolithic police state society, Libria, is lorded over by Sean Pertwee's father. <laughs> Sorry, Sean Pertwee being in something just cracks me up. <laughs> His rambling monologues on the dangers posed by emotional response broadcast to massive communal screens, blimps, etc., day and night. Father's mouthpiece at the head of government is, is Angus McFadgian. <laughs> well, 
Not actually Angus McFadgen, but I do often have to be reminded that Angus McFadgen is supposed to be an actor. <laughs> His character, DuPont, is basically a remorseless son of a bitch who looks and sounds like nothing so much as Angus McFadgen, and is hell-bent on using the Tetragrammaton to smash the resistance at any cost, though he has his suspicions about the de- dedication of Bales Preston following sense offences on the part of both his wife and his colleague. His colleague, Sean Bean. Well, not actually Sean Bean, but I do often have to be reminded that Sean Bean is supposed to be an actor. So far, so blah, 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 Nazi analogue. Equilibrium does, however, attempt to set itself apart via some spry hybrid kung fu gunplay, which at the turn of the century seemed fairly fresh and interesting. Keeping in mind that the movie initially came about at a time where a new cinematic wave of Asian martial arts and shooty bang-bangs were in full swing, it's maybe surprising that this is the only film I can think of where an attempt was made to meld the two in such an overt fashion, at least at this kind of budget level, and I actually feel it still works quite well, if perhaps more recently overshadowed by the highly choreographed antics of John Wick and the likes. Mm. Writer-director Kurt Wimmer... Wimmer? Wimmer? Is there a consensus on that? Is he German? I don't know. I think he's American. He is actually German. It's Wimmer. Yeah, I know it's Wimmer if he's German, but I don't think he's German. Um, I I expect him to pronounce it Wimmer, but who cares? Yeah, let's call it Wimmer. Anyway, he doesn't do much with any degree of subtlety, uh, though here he is certainly more focused than we witnessed with Ultraviolet a couple of years later. Following that movie's poor critical and box office performance, Wimmer has yet to helm another project, instead focusing on writing and developing story and screenplays. Though there's enough craft on display in Equilibrium to suggest that, given the opportunity and time, he may have had some more decent directorial work in him. I was perhaps surprised to find I still quite liked Equilibrium, and I still disagree with the total critical drubbing it took. Oddly enough, one of the few people to credit the movie was Roger Ebert, who said something along the lines of, it would be mindless action except that it has a mind. The same Roger Ebert that didn't get Starship Troopers. Yes. (laughs) I broadly agree with Roger on this one. If I may be so egotistical as to quote my 23-year-old self, Wimmer has taken a bold, modern approach and introduced much that is new to what would otherwise have been a dull and largely unnecessary political statement. And remember how we agreed earlier on the whole unnecessary political statement bit? (laughs) Equilibrium is not the most sophisticated, best choreographed or greatest, well, anything really, but it is the only work of art to incorporate Christian Bale, Emily Mortimer, Tay Diggs, Angus McFadgian and Brian Connolly. My pitch for Marvel Phase 4 starts here. (laughs) <laughs> Brian Conley is. Uh, I had entirely forgotten that he was in this. And Brian Conley, but that's I, Brian Conley. Why's I Brian had completely Conley? forgotten he was in this, and I had exactly the same thought this time as I did when I first saw this in the cinema, which is like, I can't believe he's not called Christian Bale, a fascist puppet. <laughs> yeah, it's taken us back. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Equilibrium has obviously aged quite poorly. Um, on a number of levels, but I still quite enjoyed it. And I'm not sure how much of that's nostalgia because I did enjoy it quite a lot back in the day. Um, it being one of the few well, Matrix knockoffs, at least in terms of how it presents its action, it was actually pretty good, mm. as opposed to a lot of them which were just awful. Uh, and I think the action scenes still hold up quite well um, for all of this. They're all right, yeah. yeah. And it, it's yeah. certainly elevated by having the likes of Christian Bale knocking around in it because, yeah, the baseline story is bare bones at best and I think if it did not have some pretty good performances even from the likes of Sean Bean um, particularly Bale um, I, I really love the scene where he, it's one of the first times he goes into one of these treasure troves of um, 
confiscated stuff. I think it's Sean Bean's old pad. But it's, it's like, you know, Beethoven has an emotional reaction to that, but he also has the same highly emotional reaction to some chintzy little snow globe. But that, that, <laughs> that, that's kind of believable. If you hadn't seen any art at all, maybe that would that's kind of thing that sells it quite well. Um, but yeah, if, if it had any less talent behind uh, the camera in terms of the action choreography and how that's captured and doing, the, uh, doing your old acting in front of it, uh, yes, this would probably be quite bad as it is it's just somewhat dated and i still quite enjoyed it um uh, yes um, certainly not subtle in anything that's trying to do but i think it still has a measure of success it definitely doesn't deserve to be um, ignored mm. yeah it certainly doesn't serve to be pilloried and yeah while it looks low budget i mean it was only 20 million dollars so it was low budget you know it, yeah um so it still looks passable enough although curiously in my head it felt more of Akin to something like the very kind of polished world of Aeon Flux, yeah. Um, rather than its sort of kind of brutalist architecture with a wee bit of uh, Judge Dredd's Badlands, um, mm-hmm. it's just weird how that kind of transmogrified in my memory. It's possibly entertaining still. It's just that I kind of think it feels a wee bit in the world building because they talk about a resistance and like but what resistance you haven't mentioned this for the entire rest of the film where Mm -hmm. did they come from there's one very fleeting reference early on to terrorist activities but beyond that nothing and you suddenly drop in this resistance at the end there wasn't a resistance there was just a suggestion that people had these banned items and there's this sudden plot convenient Escalation that comes out of nowhere that suddenly they're just going to summarily execute people. They, they didn't even know who these people were to begin with. Um, mm. Why is this suddenly a thorn in your side when there was no mention of them before? Yeah. And there are clearly only 30 of them. Yeah. <laughs> Which I suggest, I suspect it was a budgetary constraint more than anything. But Particularly when when the whole last act of it is about like them taking over the entire city and they've previously placed bombs and all that. It's like, what, all five of you have? When, when did you have time to execute this master plan? Also, Given apparently skipping even one dose of prosium <laughs> yeah. is enough to let you start feeling again, mm. but they need to wait for some action before they bomb. Well, if you bombed the dispensary, spot it not just you, you'd be fine; it would work. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but this is this is a film that is not asking to be thought to that yes. hard about or at all. <laughs> and, yes, but it's also. Do you know what? Watching this, do you know what my uh, my takeaway from it this time was? It's really interesting to see where people draw the line because I mean this got absolutely hammered at the time, and I don't think it deserves it. And do you know do you know what another movie is that is really crap and unsophisticated and is entirely saved by a single central performance? Joker. And we're throwing awards at that, apparently. Yes. So It's kind of more intense than action film. It kind of fails as anything else, I feel. I don't know. Just, it feels like it has... It almost has something to say, but it doesn't quite. And then it it kind of cops out in some other ways as well. Like, it's got the idea of, as much as it explores at all, that Angus McFadden is a hypocrite, mm. um, which is hardly novel ground for this sort of... Mm the film but so he's got like the room full of paintings and stuff um and also presumably apparently anger isn't an emotion mm. yes i know that's because the number of times people just display outright anger and they're not pulled up for it yeah it's like <laughs> it's so these sorts of things are very often inconsistently written but uh i kind of feel they've missed something here because fanaticism is actually more interesting than hypocrisy mm-hmm Every sci-fi dystopian thing like, has some hypocrisy at the end of it, but actually, see if he was just an outright fanatic and really wanted nobody to have any emotion or anything, that would be far more interesting. Mm. And if it was a cop-out, as a result, I don't think it's got an awful lot to say. It's 
it's a very unsubtle fascist world and the totalitarianism stuff, but I don't think it says an awful lot about it. Which is a pity, because I feel you could, in that world, that idea, do something a bit better. And if you take Christian Bale away from it, it's just there's there's nothing in this film at all. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a I think it's a platform for something a lot better. I don't think it would have necessarily taken a lot more work to make significantly more out of it. But I still actually enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to watching it this time. I didn't not enjoy it. Um, and I found it entertaining enough for the time I was watching it. Just I don't think there's anything particularly special in there. Mm. I, I doubt I'll watch it again. It's like, I don't mind having watched this time, but. It's one of those victims of its time where I think it's just kind of been surpassed in pretty much every respect by any other of other films at this point, from the from the sort of gunplay aspects to the, the to the visuals to yeah. you know. I think it does thematically, it's, it's just yeah, it does itself no favors too. Of clearly owns so much to the Matrix to the point where mm. there are huge bits of the music that are just basically left you straight from the Matrix soundtrack, and it's just. It sort of suffers from that is point as well. It's like it's been surpassed in other ways, but it still really obviously shows its influences there. Uh, I'm always sceptical of crying things out for being derivative of The Matrix, given that The Matrix was absolutely the most derivative sci-fi film ever, pretty much, in terms of where it gets its ideas from. But, yeah, I think The Matrix was the first thing in that vein in a long time to have any sort of significant cultural impact, I think. So I think even probably drew as well some of the... In terms of some of the, the the costume and the dress, you can draw a direct comparison to the Matrix and some of the outfits, yeah. um, especially the stuff worn by the Tetragrammaton. If you if you look at, you know, it's basically a white version of what Morpheus is wearing, you know, at certain points in the film. In fact, at one point <laughs> towards the end, Christian Bale basically, yeah, that's literally just a white version of Morpheus's outfit. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, interesting kind of to go back to. I don't know that I'm going to be going back to any time soon again, but yeah, still enjoyable at some level. Yeah, I still think. I think um, Tay Diggs got a bit of a harsh, uh, bit hard done by. I'd like to see Tay Diggs and more stuff um, after this. He kind of quite, yeah. quite quickly fell off the radar. So this in Chicago, and I don't think I've seen him much beyond this. Too. I was wondering about this because I've seen you know I've seen two or three films with Tay Diggs in, and he's never been objectionable. And actually, it's funny you mention that because again, after watching this, I sat and thought, oh yeah, I wonder what actually has become of Tay Diggs. But I didn't really care enough to. <laughs> pop his name into IMDB but like I really enjoyed his performance in um, Go Mm -hmm. um, which came out probably four or five years before this if I remember that was like 96, 97 I think was that was was it 99 was was it Doug Lyman that sounds right I do remember like Katie Holmes film yeah 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 yeah. Uh, it's a film I keep meaning to go back to actually yeah keep meaning to go back to that film he's not done much he was in Basic which is that um, Mm. sort of one of many terrible John Travolta films. Yes. <laughs> it was in Chicago, but he's a pretty minor role in that. Um, and after that, I don't really yeah, so I see him in much. I, I think I he went back to stage work. Uh, did he? I think, okay. uh, I think I read that a while back. It makes me wonder if he did something behind the scenes to fall out of favour, you know, or hmm. if there's some sort of story about that. Though. Well, well, or 20, it could just be... In 2017, he was in the My Little Pony movie. Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Cinematic faster work. Um, could just be it never took off yeah. for him, but... Um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen him in more stuff. If nothing else, I will always appreciate him for that scene towards the end where he's kind of built up as the boss battle and is immediately yeah. dispatched offhand. Just like, this is, that's the one thing of this film that I remembered incredibly clearly, clearly um, yeah. all this time <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. I, I remember being incredibly satisfied by that at yeah. the time. The, the bit of the film that I remember pretty clearly was the extra clip stuck on the floor with the 
the kind of weebles. Well, weighted, yeah, like, weighted yeah. base. And, and I watched this, and it's like, well, that was underwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I think I remember that battle has been a lot longer and a lot more sustained than it actually was in the end. But uh, cool. But there you go. We've probably said enough about that. Should we crack onwards with the V for Vendetta then? Which, well, my brain has always incorrectly filed it as a 2005 Wachowski joint, but although they did adapt this uh, work from the legendarily curmudgeonly comic book author Alan Moore's uh, work, it's James McTeague in the director's chair. And looking back, the general quality of McTeague's post-this outings raises some alarm bells, but my memory of what happened 15 days ago was pretty shaky, let alone 15 years, so Mm. how does this hold up? Uh, So the film, over the course of a year, recounts the campaign of anarchist and Guy Fawkes mask enthusiast V, played by Hugo Weaving, <laughs> against the fascist Norsefire government of Britain in the futuristic hellscape of 2032, a time and general state of affairs we are now more than halfway towards. He starts by blowing up the Old Bailey and broadcasting a message to Britain to join him in destroying the House of Parliament at this time next year. Caught up in this madness is Natalie Portman's Evie Hammond, a mild-mannered employee of the straight broadcaster that V saves from the secret police's attempted rape, in case you were to any doubt as to the nastiness of the state apparatus, who then finds herself on the run after being viewed as an accessory to V's crimes. After a period of hiding out with a lovely, forcibly closeted on Pain of Death TV host, Stephen Fry's Gordon Dietrich, she's again taken by V after Gordon's ill-advised piss-take of John Hurt's High Chancellor Adam Sutler and his extensive security apparatus's inability to catch V. Uh, which leads to him being carted away. So, here we are, an hour in, and I was starting to wonder why I vaguely remember having issues with this film. After all, the central storyline is fine, the performances are on point from a cast that I mostly like, the character backstory is intriguing and tied into the equally intriguing world-building through Stephen Rees' character's investigation, ultimately uncovering the even nastier secrets behind the rise of the Norse Fire Party. It's stylishly shot and the action is competently handled, as you'd perhaps expect from someone who's been working with the Wachowskis for so long. And then you get to the reminder that sometimes 80s comics were a little bit too grimdark for their own good, as our admittedly obviously insane, but nonetheless so far ultimately morally righteous hero tortures the other one over weeks or months for the flimsiest of reasons and seemingly mainly to avoid writing in a conversation as an exposition dump. And this is quickly forgiven uh, for this by Evie as we plough into the end of things. So, yes, I now remember my problem with this film. It is stupid. (laughs) Uh, If I'm making an effort to understand this, I suppose it could be argued that in true action film style, V's already killed a bunch of people, so perhaps we shouldn't be expecting much moral guidance from him. But even so, there's a pretty basic distinction between killing enemies and torturing allies that's difficult to get over, and Evie's acceptance of this is baffling. Uh, is it enough to spoil the rest of the film, which I'm by and large on board with? Maybe? It's certainly enough to reduce this to an at-best guarded recommendation, and for me to not think of it again for the further 15 years. Ultimately, its main cultural legacy seems to be the popularisation of Guy Fox masks amongst anti-fascists and well perhaps that point of trivia is all that it ultimately deserves to be remembered for <laughs> yeah uh, I feel quite similar to you Scott I'm watching this again thinking I'm quite enjoying this why did I really not like this before <laughs> um, oh right, and it's yes. going along okay I'm thinking there's some interesting stuff here and then suddenly it's like wait a minute why is she just forgiving him wait, yeah she said thank you he tortured her for months and said nope Nope, nope, I'm out. Uh, and then also finish like, it's up to you whether you blow up the Houses of Parliament or not. Let, let's set aside the kind of the Clark's um, Death Star conversation about all of the non-evil people working in that, even though it's clearly filled with the amusingly Tory party-based evil party. Hmm. Let's set aside the, like, the regular people that might be inside the Houses of Parliament, right? But there are 
like a million people surrounding in the streets before and I'm, I'm sure that big explosion will send everything straight up straight back down and nobody could possibly get hurt <laughs> I don't know it's, it's got interesting ideas but then as you say it's got, it gets stupid yeah um, it's annoying because it, for me it's really that one thing right everything else I really quite like or the best I'm not that bothered by um, it, but there's just one element of it that is so overarchingly silly that it just annoys me and makes it hard to even think about the rest of it in any positive light yeah it's um it makes no sense. He tortures this poor woman and, you know, torture. Pretty horrendous stuff, right? For the purpose of needing to know whether he can trust her? What? Mm. Oh, this is dumb. makes no sense. And the <laughs> yeah. fact that the, it's, it's, we're going way beyond Stockholm Syndrome here because she never... Also, it wouldn't make sense because she never sees them. But it's like, wait a minute. Um, you tortured me, took me to the edge of health and sanity. Um Thank you. No, 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 no. <laughs> the appropriate thing to do is just stab him then and there. Yeah. Um, I don't know, the film would end an hour early, but it would be appropriate for the character. Uh, in terms of the actual like film itself rather than the content, it's, I like, think people are quite good at it. The only thing is, Natalie Portman's accent, that's a bit... Hmm. It's a bit Natalie Portman, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Natalie Portman's so well regarded, and I honestly don't see it. I don't think she's that great. It's not awful, but and that accent, it's like it's sort of weirdly kind of cut glass in a way that most people don't speak. Um, yeah. And then suddenly it'll just drop in the, like the, every now and then. There's an Essex syllable, and it's it's so awful. <laughs> not really the point, I guess, of particularly of our discussion today. But it's just, uh, I couldn't stop thinking about her accent through it. Yeah. It's like another film. I think I I'll watch Starship Troopers many times again. I think the V for Vendetta. I mean, I suppose no. I've recently enjoyed it, but it's it's just that last portion is so stupid that it <laughs> undercuts anything else that happens. Yeah. And I think if, if nobody I remembered, has any moral high ground. Yeah, if I remembered precisely how silly that was, I might have picked something else to, to cover in this one. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that a lot of good work is undone by one plot element that is just so daft that it makes the rest of it very difficult to get on board with. Yeah, I've not I've not read uh, V from Detta in the comic books. I know it's been quite heavily adapted um, in in places, but I'm not sure if that bit is part of the additions or not. I think it actually isn't from from memory. In which case, I'm puzzled that the original work is so well regarded. <laughs> and I was, all I was aware of is that Alan Moore wasn't very happy with the adaptation. Anything. <laughs> My impression is Alan Moore is not particularly happy with pretty much anything in existence. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't have like, taken that as being particularly meaningful. Yeah. Well, Alan, Alan Moore is always incredibly happy to license his work out and then incredibly happy with what people do with it. So I mm. don't know. <laughs> Maybe money talks louder than Alan Moore does also, when he grumbles. He and also a lot of other people actually seem to like really not like the Zack Snyder Watchmen, and I, I really like that. And I've read the comic books like, they're nearly the same. What's your problem? Yes. <laughs> I never understood the criticism for that film, given that it's nearly identical to the comic, apart from the ending. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't please some people, apparently. <laughs> Although, I guess in summation, though, that gives us that if you want to watch a film about science fiction fascism, you should probably begin and end with Starship Troopers. And <laughs> yes, pretty much. Yeah, I'll probably do it. Yes, I guess that will wrap us up for today then. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then uh, feel free to do so. Um, Twitter, at FudsOnFilm. Facebook, FudsOnFilm. Email, FudsOnFilm. 
well, podcast at fuzzandville.com, but close enough. Um, yeah, so until next time, uh, you should take care of yourself and you should take care of other people too. Uh, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew and Scrake shall do too. Goodbye. Hasta luego.